Well, we are looking on Sunday mornings at uh, the issue of spiritual depression and some of the solutions that the Scripture gives us for this spiritual oppression, spiritual depression. And uh, last week we looked at Psalm 42, and I, I believe that uh, CD is out there available for you. And uh, you're welcome to take those are free. Uh, today I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. Or as some might say, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7. Actually, let's start with verse 6. Verse 6. Such a, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him lest, you be, lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I think the idea here uh, stems back probably from an episode in First, first Corinthians chapter 5 where a man um, is sleeping with his uh, stepmother, or maybe it's his mother, I don't know, uh, and uh, attending church as if uh, nothing was wrong with that. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, said, you all need to talk to this man, you need to discipline this man. And um, so they evidently did, and it had this tremendous spiritual and emotional impact on his life. It was so bad, and this is probably the one he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians, and that is that uh, you should now, verse 7, turn and forgive and comfort him. To comfort someone who has suffered a tremendous failure that has become public embarrassment. We tend to shy away from that. And Paul here tells us to go toward that hurting Christian. Now, they're going to be very defensive and very sensitive. And so, um, and so you're going to have to be as gentle as God can help you be. But he says, you should turn and comfort him, verse 7, or he could be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now that's interesting because you usually don't think of too much sorrow when you've fallen. And he says, uh, too much sorrow. You need to help them with that. Huh. Usually the church does the opposite. You need to feel remorse. You need to feel sorrow. You need to feel bad. Hey, mm, on our scale, you're not feeling bad enough just yet. Whoever says you're feeling too bad about it. (laughs) Boy. But here Paul says that he can be overwhelmed. The, uh, uh, The Greek word is used of water. Uh, Like you can drown in it. You know, water is good, but you can get too much water and drown. So he says, 
I'm afraid that they will be this person who has fallen. He is uh, overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So verse 8, I beg you, he tells the church, reaffirm your love for him. Amen. Paul says, make sure he knows you love him. But I've told him, told him five years ago, no, go tell him again, or her. In verse 9, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know if you're going to be obedient in everything, and whom you forgive, I forgive, verse 10. And and what I've forgiven, if it's been anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now look at verse 11, which will really be our key verse. I'm doing this, I'm saying this, so that we, he's talking about the believer who had fallen into sin, and the church at Corinth as well, and himself. We would not be outwitted by Satan or taken advantage of by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs or devices. Now that's interesting. That a believer can have excessive sorrow, a church can be judgmental, and in so doing, give Satan an inroad into your heart and life. He says, we are not ignorant of how Satan works. He takes advantage of too much guilt and regret. And Paul wants to lay out there for them a strategy so Satan doesn't get the advantage in this emotional time and vulnerable time in the life of the church. Perhaps this excessive sorrow can be over a sin that you have a hard time thinking God would forgive you of. But 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. All. I love that word. Not some or most or everything but that. But the blood of Christ cleanses us from all. It could be that you pray continually for forgiveness, but you don't feel forgiven. So you think that by prayer, constant confession of the same sin. Let me tell you this. Uh, Prayer does not bring forgiveness or make you a Christian. Um, You will find the Muslims pray five times a day. They probably pray more than we do. But it doesn't make them Christian. Uh, is, uh, not only Islam, but uh, Hindus pray. What is it that brings forgiveness? It's not praying for forgiveness, but Romans 5, 1, we are justified, that is, made righteous by faith, not prayer. You don't have to spend all night in prayer to be forgiven. 
You can pray one time and believe the gospel and be forgiven. And this excessive sorrow. See, Satan can always say, you don't feel bad enough yet. You haven't prayed long enough yet. Listen, Jesus died and that is your righteousness, my friend. That's the core of atoning work is in the cross. Mark eleven twenty four says, I tell you, this is Jesus' words, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you've received it and it's yours. Believe you received it, past tense. So when you're asking for forgiveness, say, Lord, I believe you've forgiven me. And then get up and go to work. Or wherever you're going. Church. Maybe it is over regret for bad decisions past. And now you're living with a sense of defeat. You... um, Somebody said, well, you made your bed, now you got to lay in it. Or you buttered your bread, now you got to eat it. Or you buttered your bed, now you got to lay in it. <laughs> Those phrases are not in the Bible, by the way. Uh, Joel 2.25 is one of my favorite verses where he says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. Not just days or weeks, but the years that God can restore your life. How does God restore years? How does that work? Well, He has to speed up blessing. Increase the speed of it. And compress time. In other words, He has to override normal and natural events. Hey, that's called a miracle, and let me tell you, God does miracles, God answers prayer, we need to trust Him for some of that. Everything is not just normal in the Christian life. But He can increase blessing and speed and and compress time. You you have an example of this in John chapter 2, when Jesus turned water into wine. Okay, now, totally apart from the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, y'all can fuss at him when you get to heaven. I'm just uh, going to give you this as an illustration. Y'all are good Baptists. You don't drink wine. Uh, we all know that. Somebody said, alcohol has never touched my lips. I drink it through a straw. <laughs> That's still funny after all these years. (laughs) Anyway, so Jesus, y'all know how long, I mean, have you ever heard how long it takes to make wine age, the aging of wine, the process? Uh, In the Jewish community, uh, you... All wine is non-kosher until six years at least. Uh, Most wines take five to seven years to age properly, and some wines go as high as 25 to 30 years. That's aging of wine. It, It gives it texture and flavor. And Jesus took 
this water and not only turned it into wine, but John 2.10 says that they came to him and said, man, some people give the good wine, the best wine, first. But you have given it, saved it for last. So it was not only wine, aged to wine, but good wine. He took years of the process and compressed it into hours. Oh, man. See, God can speed up blessing and decrease the time it takes to get it. Let me give you an example of this in the Old Testament. Uh, This is, if you have your Bible there, uh, flip over to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. You don't hear a lot about Isaac in the Bible. But this one event, this one chapter in his life, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Genesis 26, uh, there's a famine in the land. This is, that's verse 1. And Isaac is in the land of Gerar, where the Philistines are. It's, it's the land of Canaan or the modern-day land of Israel. And he's, the famine is so severe, he's about to leave and go down to Egypt. And God appears to him and says, don't do it. Stay right where you are. In this famine-filled, enemy-saturated land. So verse 6 says, Adam, or Isaac settled in Gerar. Now drop down to verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land. Notice what land? Gerar, the land of famine. Uh, the land of recession. He sowed in that land and reaped in that year. Notice how God overrules environment and time. He sowed in that land and in that year God gave him a hundredfold. Now that's called increasing the speed of the blessing. Because see, people tend to think like this and they have, it has a, there's nothing wrong with it necessarily. But you get locked in. Here's how many years it takes to put a retirement program together. Here's how much you have to put in every month. Ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. And then you can get this amount of money back per month. Where's God? Is there no God who can give you, when everybody else is having a famine, He can give you a hundredfold in the same year they live in the same town they live in. Come on. And I'll tell you something else. In that same chapter, in that same land, in verse 7, the men of that place in Gerar asked him about his wife. And he said, uh, she's my sister because he was afraid to say she's my wife thinking the men of the place might kill me and take her. So he lied about it. Nice going, Isaac. There goes your blessing. Right? Lying. 
throwing your wife under the bus, saving your own skin. No more prosperity for you. (laughs) Now, that is the story that precedes the statement he sowed in that land and in that same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him and he became rich and gained more and more. Look, what you have to do is throw yourself on the power of God and the goodness of God that God's power is greater than the land you live in and His mercy is greater than the sins you've committed. Throw yourself on that. God, I don't deserve it. What is God going to say? Duh. Boy, shot me there. And all this time I thought you deserved to be blessed. (laughs) Just ask God to give it to you out of the riches of His mercy. Not the poverty of your merit. So, Going back now to this passage in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, there, there are some of us who feel like we've done things or we've gone too far or we've made such bad decisions. I made bad decisions early on, financial decisions, which, which interpreted means I didn't listen to my wife. That basically is what that means. So I made bad decisions. I was not able to afford my home, buy a first home until I was 40 years old. And then the interest rate, y'all are fighting over 3 and 4%. Our interest rate, because of my credit rating, was 10.5%. So that's where I was. But God has compressed time and increased blessing so that three or four years ago I was able to walk in and write a check for my car. Paid cash for it. Now, it's not a new car, but it was the one God led me to, and it's a good car. And I, that was the first time I had ever been able to do that. I have a savings account. God can make up for lost time and restore the years the locusts have eaten. Don't grieve too much so that you just give up and capitulate. All right. Well, this is what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians and to the one that they were ministering to. Don't let despair rule. Guard against a sustained remorse. A continued sense of guilt over bad decisions of the past. Thinking that prayer is useless because the God of heaven would not listen to you. Really? Do you listen to your children when they've done bad or wrong? 1 John 3 one says, Behold what Love the Father has bestowed upon us that we'd be called the children of God. Remember, dear friend, the gospel as it applies to emotional and spiritual balance. That at the cross is the basis of our blessing from God. Take the gospel with you when you go to pray. So Paul says, confirm your love to this man. 
in, in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians. He says, forgive and comfort him. I beg you, reaffirm your love to him. Don't let Satan trick you or obtain an illegitimate gain from your emotional distress. We're to reach out to people who have fallen. We must recognize the work of the enemy in our emotional life so that if we are weak or hurt or in grief, excessive sorrow can be applied to when you're at a funeral. You've lost a loved one. Anytime emotional excess comes into play, Satan is watching for it. Guard against that. Uh, if, you, if someone has disappointed you or betrayed you and you have become bitter, guard against that. And remember this, Satan does not come as often when you're strong as when you're in distress. Psalm 18, verse 17, David said, He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me, and they came to me and confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. When did the enemy come? In his calamity, in his trouble, when he's already down, when he's weak, when he's tired, when he's alone. When did Satan come to Jesus and attack him first time? Matthew chapter 4. After he had fasted 40 days, Satan came to him. Satan waits until we're vulnerable, see. So guard those times, and the church needs to be aware that those times are times in the life of the believer when Satan often attacks. All right, let me give to you now... uh, for the remainder of time I have, three things that have helped me. These are simple little truths. Three things that have helped me in obtaining... (laughs) My kids are going to laugh at this. In obtaining emotional and mental health. (laughs) Okay. Hey, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. These these things, these three things have helped me to become stable. (laughs) You should have seen me without these three things. That's all I got to tell you. Number one is just truth of Scripture. I, I read the Bible every day. And the truths of Scripture just come up at me. And uh, uh, one of the truths, a, a man came to me, this was several years ago, and he came up to me and he said, man, Pastor, I just think God's left me. And he had his Bible there in his hand, King James Version. I said, well, open it up to Matthew twenty-eight twenty. So he opened it up and he says, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the world. I said, so what does that say? He said, I am with you to the end of the world. I said, is it the end of the world? No. Then I said, the word, let the word do its work. 
He's with you. Or Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore we may, what? Boldly say, He will never leave us or forsake us. Speaking God's Word, hearing God's Word, when you, and I put this reference up because the references to Ephesians 6 on spiritual warfare, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Satan, these enemies in the invisible realm, this is what we are confronting and engaging. And he says, in order to win, you put on the name six pieces of armor. And you know what the first piece of armor is? The belt of truth. Just putting on truth. And so the first thing is to put on the truth about God. He's good. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is forgiving. Put on the truth about Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He made us accepted before the Father. His righteousness is a fabric that's untorn. It's whole cloth. It's full and it's final and it's forever. And put on the truth is the very first thing in dealing with satanic interference in your life. Here's a second thing. And that is faith in the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Satan has a false theology. Do you remember how he came to Eve in Genesis 3-5 and he got her to look at the tree that God prohibited her from eating, her and Adam? And she said, we can't eat from that. And Satan said, who said that? Uh, God didn't really say that. Besides that, it, God knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him, knowing as much as he knows. Satan came to Eve with this accusation about God. He does not have your best interest at heart. That's, in other words, God is not good. He does not have your best interest at heart. The the lack of the goodness of God is a satanic theology. God is good. Even when it looks like He's not. Give Him time. God is good. Faith in the goodness of God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Amen. Amen. I, I believe that God himself is the foundation for mental health. Amen. He's the foundation. Theology is the foundation for psychological, emotional well-being. Start with God and his word. And then here's a third thing. Praise Him. Praise Him. I'm just giving you things that have helped me. That when I am in excessive grief, and I feel like Satan is exacerbating it and exaggerating it. See, the the grief is valid. The emotion is true. But Satan comes in and he pours gasoline on the fire. He makes it flame up. Now, when I feel that, one of the things I do is I praise God. I praise Him. 
I, I, I thank him for my body. I told that to the early service this morning and they started laughing. <laughs> Don't get that. No, I said, hey, if I can thank God for my body, you can thank God for your body. <laughs> Amen? Can I get a witness on that? I think that should go on a t-shirt. <laughs> and we'll sell them out there. If I can thank God for my body... <laughs> <laughs> no, praise Him for your body. Praise Him for your eyes. Praise Him. I, I thank Him for my car. Uh, that And how He will enable me to come together with the proper finances, the right amount of money, and the right vehicle. I actually was praying for that kind of car. And I saw one, well, I saw two that were possibilities. Uh, one was here in Flint, and it was lime green. I thought, <laughs> God, please don't make me buy that one. <clears throat> there was another one in California. I thought, I, if I have to, I'll fly out there and get it. But then I saw this one that I have now. And an older couple would go to Florida every year, and they'd park that Buick Rainier in their garage every year for about four months. And then even when they did drive it, they didn't drive it far. It had about 50,000 miles on it. And it was four or five years old. It was half price. Half price. Less than half price. And when God led me to that, I, so I thank Him for it. Praise God. And I thank Him for my family. I thank Him for my church. Hardly a day goes by that I don't say, God, thank you. And I thank Him for individuals. Some of you are individuals that when you come to mind, say, God, thank you. When I'm in a meeting, I, I go around the room in my heart and mind, I'm just thanking them. Thank you, God, for that person, all that they do. Thank you, thank you. Start thanking and praising God. Listen to what Isaiah said. Isaiah 61, verse 3. To those who mourn in Zion... He will give you beauty for ashes and, an, and the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Changing clothes. A garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. So this, this third thing that I do, I, I put, man, just... Praising God, thanking God for what He's done for me. I was up uh, some years ago um, at the Bristol Road location, and I and I was by myself in the building. And I thought I really need to check the third floor, make sure there's nobody, no no teenagers lingering, all the lights off. So I went up there, and when I walked in, the lights were off. But it was a little bit light so I could, I could see to get, go in. And I don't know if, if anybody's... Uh, so I know some of you have been on that third floor in the education building. And uh, it gets kind of creepy up there. In fact, we got some guys that, that when they go over there, they take a gun. They wear their gun. Well, I didn't have no gun. but So I was on the third floor. And I walked and I looked over. And we have had people try to break in. 
And, and I looked over to my right, and I was like in a doorway almost, and I saw a guy standing there. Ugly dude. <laughs> I, it was just vague. And when I looked, and I jerked around, and he moved at the same time, and, and I thought, man, what do I do now? Jesus saved me. And I went, and I flipped the light on. And you know what it was? It was me. (laughs) There was a full-length mirror there, and I had scared myself. (laughs) Dude, you are one ugly dude in the mirror. You are scary. (laughs) And, And I thought, this is the way so much of our fears are. It's not coming from God. It's coming out of here. It's coming out of our our fallen nature. It's coming out of our circumstances. He has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love. He loves you. And of power. He will enable you. And a sound mind. He will heal your grief. Amen. Well, we'll continue this next week in as we look at the issues of spiritual oppression and depression. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would grant to us this beautiful, lovely garment of praise instead of a a sense of grief in Zion. Restore our joy that the joy of the Lord might be our strength. And bless this people in Jesus' name. Amen.